and then we will dive into the seventh petition. O Lord God, Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless our study as we learn what it means to be delivered from evil and the evil one. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Seventh petition, but deliver us from evil. What does this mean? We pray in this petition in summary that our Father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, possessions and reputation. And finally, when our last hour comes, give us a blessed end and graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. Uh, we're going to look at this in two parts, which really correspond nicely to the front and back page that worked out well. Uh, the first part will be delivering us from evil, specifically like suffering. But then the second part will be on spiritual warfare. So that's how we're going to approach today. Um, because that's, if you look at all our fathers in the faith, that's how they kind of break this petition down. And they see it as a summary, the first point there, of all that's been prayed in the Lord's Prayer so far. To be delivered from evil from the evil one is a summary of everything that's gone before. Um, and so in this regard, Luther quotes Psalm 121, um, verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Which, um, in the liturgy, we do actually use that. Does anyone know where that's used liturgically? Huh? Yeah, somebody said it. Baptism. Use that at the end of the baptismal rites. Um, so it makes a nice connection there with baptism. In fact, Luther says, from the moment of your baptism, the devil is closer to you than the shirt on your back. But he's always out to get you from that moment on. Um, so there's a nice connection there to that promise. So all the previous petitions are summed up in this, deliver us from evil. And in the large catechism, Luther says, in the Greek text, this petition reads, deliver us Deliver or preserve us from the evil one or the hateful one. It looks like Jesus was speaking about the devil, like he would summarize every petition in one. So the entire substance of all our prayers directed against our chief enemy. For it is he who hinders among us everything that we pray for. God's name or honor, God's kingdom and will, our daily bread, a cheerful good conscience, and so forth. You see again how God wishes for us to pray to him also for all the things that affect our bodily interests. So we seek and expect help nowhere else except in him. But he has put this matter last. For if we are to be preserved and delivered from all evil, God's name must first be hallowed in us, his kingdom must be with us, and his will must be done. After that, he will finally preserve us from sin and shame and besides, from everything that may hurt or harm us. So to look at that aspect of it, I want to look at these four things at the bottom of the page. Uh, prayer of deliverance from evil. And I'm adapting these from um, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, who was brilliant. Um, he was known as the dumb ox. If you're not familiar with that story, um, his classmates when he was young said, there's a pig flying outside the window. And he went and looked. And they said, oh, you're just a dumb ox. And he said, I'd rather, I'd rather believe that pigs could fly than that my friends would deceive me. So uh, maybe not the funnest guy to be around, but you know, kind of, kind of a killjoy with that. But um, quite brilliant, and um, he had some helpful points on, on, on this. Uh, I thought that were particularly helpful. So first, God can directly intervene to stop it, that is evil, but this is rare. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted or um, will suffer. So suffering from evil is 
the common lot for the Christian. We looked at this um, some before. So what I'm doing with this, because we looked at this in detail with some other petitions, is summarizing a different way to kind of look at this, especially being delivered from it. Second, God gives comfort as we suffer from evil. For that, we look at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Uh, God comforts us in a variety of ways. He comforts us through other Christians, right? So there, he mentions Titus specifically coming. He comforts us through word and sacrament. That's the primary way that God comforts you, right? Like Psalm 23 is, is great and it's beautiful, but a lot of people think of it generically or abstractly. Like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or... Uh, I shall not lack, which is a really great translation of that. Um, I shall not lack anything. But what does he do? He leaves you beside still waters. This isn't like for you to meditate upon like being a sheep, being led by like waters or feeding on grass. The imagery is Jesus bringing you to baptism, feeding you the grass of his holy word. Like that's the imagery. And there's table imagery at the end, the Lord's Supper. Like that's how God shepherds you. That's how he comforts you. It's through like those actual means of grace that he actually does that by giving you very real things. His word, baptism, his body and blood and Lord's Supper. My favorite verse, or portion of the verse in that is, he restores my soul. Yes, and how does he do that? He does it through his, his word and sacrament, right? Like, he doesn't just zap us with these things. Like, he gives them to us through, through his gifts. Um, so that's the primary way God comforts us when we suffer from evil. But that includes, like, Luther in the Small Cutter Articles talks about how God is overabundantly generous with his gifts of the gospel, all the different ways he forgives our sins and helps us. And he mentions in there uh, the mutual consolation of the brethren, that when you all speak the gospel to one another and encourage one another, right? And in fact, that's what Paul intends when he says that those who have suffered can comfort others in their affliction. How do they comfort them? With the gospel, not just by saying, hey, yeah, I've been through terrible things too. Pat them on the back and say, good luck. It's hard. No, you cover them with the gospel, like with the words of Christ. That's what gives real comfort. Um, yeah, you can sit with them like Job's friends did and commiserate with them. That's good too. But then the way you bring comfort is not just through your presence, but through the word of God. Um, third, many blessings are sometimes bestowed on those afflicted. So 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Um, God can bring about um, blessings even in the midst of your affliction. So it doesn't mean... So here, though, what he's talking about, your, the affliction is not removed. The thing you're suffering from is not removed, but God's still blessing you during it, in the midst of it. So the evil thing, the suffering, is not taken away, but instead, God is blessing you in different ways through that suffering, in the midst of that suffering. Which is related to the fourth one, the afflictions themselves bring about our goods. For that one, 2 Corinthians 12. This is a really famous passage on this kind of stuff, so we'll spend a little bit of time on it. Three times I plead with the Lord about this and that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, that I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. Um, so we have here, uh, the afflictions themselves bring about our goods. So Paul here is pleading about this thorn in his flesh. And there's a lot of debate about what that thorn was. I, I think, um, like Chris Austin talks about this, some of the other church fathers, that the thorn in his flesh was that every time he went somewhere with the gospel, the Jews followed and they persecuted him. They tried to overturn his teaching. And that was the thing that was his constant affliction. So he's going around doing this work of God and everywhere he goes, they follow right on his heels and stir up trouble. Even to the point of getting people to stone him, kick him out of town, whatever. Um, that's a constant thorn in his flesh. And so he pleads with God, take this from me. And God says, no, you're stuck with it. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says, I learned when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Why? Because he learned to trust on Jesus who's strong. Not that he became strong enough himself or that somehow he powered through it, but that he learned to hold on to Jesus and that's what got him through. That's what he means when he says, in Philippians, through Christ, I can do all things. Through Christ, who strengthens me. What you see like on marathon runner shirts and like weightlifter shirts and like all kinds of weird things. Paul in that passage is saying he's learned to be content no matter the circumstance. <laughs> Not that uh, Jesus is going to power him to, to lift a uh, 350-pound deadlift or something, but that uh, Jesus will teach him to be content and get him through any circumstance. That when he's suffering, he's learned to be content. That's the point in Philippians. And same point here, that when he's weak, he's strong. Not in of himself, not because he's great or strong or mighty, but because these afflictions have caused him to cling to Jesus all the more. And in that affliction... Um, he's holding on to him. There's a seat over here. You need two? We can find another chair. Oh, there's one here, too, if you want to steal a chair. There's two over there. They're on vacation, and no one took their spots. That's how, that's how Lutheran you guys are. They're literally in another country, and you left their chairs. Like, they're not showing up. Like, they're really far away. So... You know, like, but you left their chairs. That was nice. It's like an homage to them. Like, if they were here, they would sit there. Any questions on that part before we transition to the kind of the second half, which is a very different kind of topic related, but, but we're going to cover it differently. Any questions on suffering? All right, flip to the back. Um... Spiritual warfare and the devil. So Luther says all this is from the evil one, from the devil. And so I thought it would be helpful because we've mentioned some of the, we've mentioned a bunch of these things last week. Pastor Walter on temptation. Um, I've mentioned some in various places too. But I wanted to bring it all together because I know it's a topic that people are interested in, but often aren't sure like how to talk about it, how to handle it, um, etc. So we'll be referencing Ephesians six throughout. Um, the great chapter there um, from Paul, verses 10 and following. But I want to start with the divine counsel and angels. Because we have to think about these things correctly to really understand like, what, we're, what we're dealing with. Um, so, you have the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden, I believe very strongly, I don't have time to prove all of this, sorry. Uh, you can look into it later, ask me about it later. But uh, the Garden of Eden, I believe, is on a mountain. Uh, 
for a whole variety of reasons, including the text of Genesis itself, but it's on a mountain. And the Garden of Eden, if you in terms, instead of, you guys hear garden, and what do you think of? Huh? Vegetables. Yeah, like a little vegetable garden. So the Garden of Eden is like an orchard with walls and animals and trees. Like that's the picture you should have. Like it's this magnificent large thing because it is the place of worship. It is the heavenly, it's a sanctuary, it's, it's heaven on earth. As we talk about in the liturgy, right? Heaven on earth. There's a reason we use that language in the liturgy too, right? With angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Why do we say that? Because we believe that heaven and earth are united in the divine service. And on, in Eden, that same thing was happening. God is there present, and he's present there with uh, his angels. And the angels um, include the really weird ones we don't like to think about or talk about, the cherubim, right? Because they've got like four faces, and they've got wings, they've got weird bodies, and so we're like, eh, that's kind of strange. We don't just try not to think about them. The only ones we think about, if you look at the medieval hierarchy of angels, the nine ranks, we talk about the very last one, angels slash messengers. Why? Because they look human-like, and we're comfortable with that. We don't like to talk about the other ones because it gets weird, and we're like, there's a lot of weird things in the Bible, right? So there's cherubim, though. There's seraphim in the garden. Um, I mentioned seraphim specifically because we're going to talk about Satan, and I, I think there's a good chance he was a seraphim, which will help explain Genesis 3 quite a bit for us. But so there's this place of worship on the mountain, and in fact, it's the only thing in all creation where God doesn't speak it to an existence, but he plants it. Genesis 2 is very clear on this. Everything else God speaks. The garden slash orchard, this paradise, he plants. Um, the reason for that is so Adam could watch him do it because Adam was supposed to eventually go out and plant these garden paradises throughout the world for places of worship as they ruled the earth. They weren't ever supposed to stay in Eden. Um, that's, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's very clear. It tells them where to get the gold. It tells them where all the precious... Those weird parts, right, in Genesis 2, it tells you like where the gold is, where this stone is, where that is. And you're like, who cares? Well, it's because Adam's supposed to go out and get those things and build and make beautiful things in the world. He was to rule and reign over it. Uh, but there's a problem, right? So oh, I should mention one more thing about the, these angels in the garden. So um, there's a correct divine counsel theology and an incorrect one. Um, an incorrect one would view... The divine council is kind of all equal like gods um, among one another. But that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is there is the God, the one true God. But his angels are part of his council. If you've noticed ever in the Bible, there are times when the Lord asks his angels questions. Have you ever noticed that? For example, 2 Kings 6 is a weird one. Right? He says, what shall I do to Ahab? And one of them says, send a lion spirit. There'll be a lion spirit in the mouth. And he says, okay, go. Now, here's where it gets weird for us. Does God need any helpers to do anything? No. But does God choose to work through means? Yes. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here right now. God works through means even down to today. He works through people, things, stuff. Bread, wine, water. Yeah, he works through means. Um, that goes all the way back to creation. Uh, the angels, these heavenly beings, are referred to as stars. We heard that this morning. The morning stars shouted for joy at creation. The sons of God. In the Old Testament, the only people referred to as sons of God actually are the angels. Um, God, God's, and sometimes rulers and judges, but God's people aren't referred to that way singular. They're referred collectively as the son of God. Um, in the New Testament, that changes drastically. 
as you know, um, so that we are called children of God. But in the Old Testament, the phrase sons of God is usually reserved for these divine beings. Um, it is one of these divine beings, then, that was present in this worship place that speaks to Eve. I think this is important. Atheists will say, well, how dumb is this? Like, a serpent talked to her. And they're like, how can a serpent talk? And often Christians say things like, the serpent was possessed. And that's entirely possible. But if you read what Moses does with this word he uses for Satan here throughout the entire Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, um, there's a really good chance that Satan was a seraphim, which is a serpent-like looking angel. And if you read Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, there is a whole bunch. They take these passages um, about Satan's fall, and they, the, it's applied to, to these rulers and their fall. But you can learn a lot from them about Satan's fall. And that's how the church has understood those. Um, that also then makes sense why Eve wasn't surprised it was talking to her. I've heard people say, well, maybe all the animals talked. Okay, that's not, that's not likely. Like, yes, I know that happens in Narnia, which I love, but that is, that is not a likely scenario for the garden. The most likely scenario is that she's used to angelic beings talking to her because she's in the heavenly worship place and she knows that they are intelligent creatures that can talk. And this intelligent being, divine being, a son of God, that's what he's referred to as, rebels against gods. Uh, the church fathers say it's because he hated, uh, he hated that creation, the mankind was going to be higher than him. So that part of it was pride. Like he didn't like that they, they these, um, if you read Milton's Paradise Lost, which you should, uh, one of the greatest poems ever written in the English language, um, epic poems ever written, where uh, Satan like refers to them like as like what does he refer to them as basically like uh, bags of flesh or something like that. Like he's not impressed by them. <laughs> uh, but that's kind of the picture the church fathers took away that he's proud and rebelling. But what they were created for was to worship God, to share rule and authority, to protect and defend. But then they rebel, and in their rebellion, then they seek to lead astray, to kill and destroy. Uh, turn to Revelation twelve. We could talk a lot more about those kind of things, but um, there's all kinds of interesting stuff about that. Those, the topic of angels. Um, but for time's sake, we're going to jump to Revelation 12, because this is kind of interesting. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So, in your manger scene, this year, what I would like for you to have, somewhere lurking in the background is some kind of red dragon. Because that's what Revelation 12 says. That's also then why, very quickly after the birth of Christ, what happens? Something really horrific does happen. The red dragon does what? Slaughters the babies of Bethlehem, yeah? The two-year-old and under for the boys, right? Um, so you have this picture here of Satan as this, this, this red dragon seeking to devour the child. 
She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God and when she has to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, this next part gets really interesting and gets into um, what I kind of want to focus on, which is the, the warfare we're actually in now. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Right? So in our minds, what we think is, we think of them fighting with weapons. So we think we have Michael and his, his angels fighting the dragon and, and his fallen angels. And in our heads, the way we think about that is like, they, you know, maybe they're using some kind of angelic swords or something. That'd be cool. But it was actually a war of words. <laughs> Um, right? Which then we're kind of like, oh, that's not nearly as exciting. But it's important um, for what happens. But he was no de- defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. So the picture here is, this is, this is post-ascension of Christ. Right? So... Throughout the Bible, remember in Job, Job chapter 1, who goes and brings a charge directly before the throne of God amongst all the other angels and sons of God? The devil. He goes into the divine council and says, hey, this guy, I bet if I did this to him, he would not trust you anymore. So let me add him. But he does that, it says, with the sons of God, with the other angels. He's allowed access to that. Now in Revelation 12, Christ has died, he's risen, and he's ascended, and now there's no place for him to go before the throne of the Father and accuse you. Why? Who's there? Jesus. Jesus. And what has he done? He's died for you. So he doesn't allow lies and condemnation to be brought before the throne of God. Satan can't go to God the Father and condemn you to, and say what he says about Job because Jesus says, I paid for all that. Right? They overcome by the, word, the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. More on that in a moment. But that's the picture here. Is that Satan's not allowed into the divine council anymore because Christ, our advocate, is there. And he doesn't allow any of lies to be brought into the courtroom. He kicks them out. That's why it's a war of words. In the divine heavenly courtroom, Michael and the angels toss them out, all of them out, because Christ is there on our behalf. He's not allowed to do that anymore. So now he comes and he condemns you and your conscience and brings up your sins to you, but he can't go before the Father and condemn you. Right? This is a really beautiful passage that you're probably not real familiar with because it's Revelation, and Revelation's weird. Yeah? So we kind of like skim through it or we're like, I don't know what to do with that. But that's what's going on here. It's a really beautiful, comforting passage for Christians, at least. Um, but then it says, He's been thrown down to earth, and his wrath is great, for he knows his time is short. And so when he comes down, he pursues the woman. That is the church here in this latter half of Romans 12, or Revelation 12. He's going after the church, and he's going after Christians. 
So what I want to look at then is how does he attack us? Um, I, I find it helpful. I came across this. I find it really helpful. Um, like things of three, and especially that have alliteration, are easy to remember. So he attacks your head, your hands, and your hearts. Or to put it another way, your doctrine, your duty, and your devotion. All right? That's how Satan attacks. Um, so your head, that is, he messes with your thinking. He wants you to think incorrectly. This can include everything from false teaching to confusing thoughts, whatever. Um, hands, that is, Satan can actually attack your body. Psalm 91 tells us Satan can even make us sick. Right? I mean, that's one of the things we pray for in Psalm 91 is that we be prevented from sickness. Luther talks about this in large catechism. The devil causes sickness and fires and all kinds of destruction. Like, this is in, I know we don't, like I said a couple weeks ago, we don't think this way because uh, we're Westerners and we like to think everything has a, a rational scientific answer. Um, but our own confessions, and more importantly, the Bible, our confessions are. Talking, uh, summarizing, say that the devil can cause all kinds of problems in the world. And for you. Um, and your heart that is trying to seek your, your devotion, your desires away from um, um, God. There is a difference um, between a, a Christian a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. I get asked this. Can a Christian be possessed by a demon? The short answer is no. Um, unless they basically fall away from the faith or, or allow that in some way. They can be oppressed by demons, afflicted by them, um, but they cannot be possessed by them, is usually the language that um, is used for that. So we can be attacked, but they can't possess somebody. Um, now, I know all kinds of crazy stories about actual demon possession and demonic things uh, that we're probably not going to get into right now because it takes us too far astray and also then people kind of get obsessed with those kind of things but these things are real there is in the pastoral care companion for lutheran pastors there is a rite of exorcism but we don't call it that we call it help for those in spiritual distress which <laughs> i i don't know why i've never asked professor plus why they went with that title but it is i've had classes with him um he'll put it together and i know what it is it is a rite of exorcism that's what it is um as I mentioned a few weeks ago, Luther says be really careful because mental illness, other things can look like demon possession, but not actually demon possession. So you don't want to go in and do an exorcism on someone that's suffering some kind of mental or physical affliction, then you look like an idiot. I mean, Luther warns about this 500 years ago. So this isn't new. But on the other hand, we're more prone today to not think that's going on at all. I think that's not part of the problem at all. Um, but it does happen. Um, and I've, like I said, I've heard from pastors, like weird and crazy stories. If you read my first exorcism, all kinds of crazy things can happen um, with these kind of things. And if you haven't experienced that in any way, then thanks be to God. Um, however, though, a point I want to make here is that most attacks are not as in your face as like those kind of things. They just aren't. Most attacks, especially in our culture, in our day and age, are, are much more subtle. He's going to mainly attack the word, the word of God, get you to doubt the word of God that is a satanic attack. Does God's word really say that there's male and that there's female? Does God's word really say that marriage is between a man and a woman? Rightly defined as male and female in the previous sentence. 
Does the Bible actually say those things? Those are attacks. Those are satanic attacks at you to doubt the word of God. Um, he attacks your conscience with sin and your love for your neighbor. So um, I think I have, yeah, on the next one, he desensitizes and deadens, demoralizes and just causes you to despair. And that's especially in your conscience. So Satan has two mirrors. He has uh, the minimizing mirror. And this is what he does. It's like a, like a fun house, right? So when he's trying to tempt you to sin, he minimizes it and says, this isn't a big deal. It's not going to harm anyone. No one's going to know about it, etc., etc. You know all the lies. But then, once you've committed that sin, Satan uses the magnifying mirror and says, wow, look at what you've done. Look at how horrific that is. You don't deserve to be forgiven. So he's doing both, right? He's attacking you on the one hand. And then, one of the things he attacks is to mention your love for your neighbor. So, if he can't get you on doctrine, on the word, then he attacks how you treat others. And you have to remember, too, Satan is a master tactician. He's been watching people, and the fallen angels and demons have, for, you know, thousands of years. Um, they cannot read your mind, but they know what your struggles are. They know how to attack you. And so your attacks will look different than someone else's attack. Um, but most of them are pretty boring, if you will. They're these kind of things. They're not like these manifestations, uh, physically or otherwise, that sometimes happen. Um, that, that's not the way it normally works. Those do happen. But normally, day in and day out, that's not what you're experiencing. You're experiencing your, the word being attacked, uh, sin and conscience issues, and love for your neighbor issues. That's his primary tax, especially for the Christian. Any questions before we, we go on, on on that? I missed, even though you said, heads, hands, heart, and then there were three other items. It's on your handout. Doctrine, duty, and devotion. Thank you. Which correspond to head, hands, and hearts. Um, just two different ways of saying the same thing, yeah. But those are the, the I like those three because it's helpful to think he is attacking you as a whole person, right? Um, too often, and there's a danger, and this is true in some circles, and it includes our circles as Lutherans. Um, we run the danger of thinking people are just brains on a stick, and that if they just had more information, everything would be okay. But we're not just brains on sticks, we're whole people. We're body, mind, and soul, and Satan attacks all of those areas. Um, that's why it's the, the, the tendency in our day and age is to think that physical things don't matter. So, um, like, anything from how I dress to body posture and worship to any of those things don't matter. But the hands do matter. Like, our bodies matter. Our bodies can be a reflection of what we believe in the heart. Um, the, those, things, those things actually matter. How we, how we use them. Um, that's why the Bible prescribes things like fasting, because it's a physical thing, but it doesn't just affect you physically. Um, we talked about that before. We'll, we'll come up here again in a second, but um, we're, we're whole persons. Uh, the Bible talks about us this way. Um, so whether it's, it's worship or teaching, like we want to connect all of these things. So it's not just in our head, but it's, it's lived out in our bodies and actually believed in faith in our hearts. So unlike society, we should sweat the little things? Yeah, I mean, 
Uh, I, I think a Christian, one of our duties is to have a, a what is a, the Bible speaks to something. I, I think it's our duty as Christians to actually know what it says and to actually try to, right, believe that and follow through on it, even if it seems like unimportant to anyone else. And this is what happens with church divisions right now. When you get a group of Christians together and some Christians will say, uh, doctrine divides. It's not what St. Paul says. St. Paul says doctrine unites. That those who are teaching the error are dividing. Uh, the Bible calls it being schismatic. You're breaking away from the truth, right? Um, people will say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe. It matters what you do. Again, the Bible says the opposite. It says quite clearly that what you believe has a tremendous impact on what you do. But more importantly than that, the way you believe is the core, the core starting spot, right? Um, so if we could come together even as other Christians and say, these things actually matter. We need to discuss them and debate them like Christians. We get a lot further than saying these things don't matter. Because if God teaches them, then they do matter. It doesn't mean we can, I can look at like, you know, someone who's a Baptist and say, well, you got baptism wrong, Lord's Supper wrong, therefore you're, you're, you're no good, you're not even a Christian. No, they're still Christian. But I should be able to say, but we have serious disagreements, we need to talk about those. Like adults, like real Christians, and not just pretend they don't exist. Now, nowadays, I, I do think there is something to be said for the fact that um, I'm less concerned about my pious Baptist neighbor who loves Jesus than about the secularism that's trying to destroy us. Like, right? A lot of the debates we had in the 16th and 17th century were had because the culture at large was Christian, and they had time to have a lot of those debates amongst themselves. If we survive the next 20, 30 years, we can have lots more debates with the Baptists and other Christians around us about the things that divide us. Right now, though, a lot of it just needs to be focused on uh, helping each other survive the onslaught that we're living in, quite frankly. But... I mean, that's related to this. I was going to say it's a different topic, but it's really not. Um, it is related to all of this, but we're not quite the same. Any other questions on how we're attacked? Pastor, what you say really confirms in my mind the importance. You know, I'm, I'm concerned about our grandchildren and children who are five years old and going to public schools and learning this, the trash that public schools in Illinois, especially in Illinois, are trying to teach them. Why a Christian school is so important? Kids, they're walking in very naive, and uh, they're, they're teaching things that are just terrible. Yeah, I mean, what what is taught to our children is extremely important, and especially uh, there's a danger too. The flip side to that is, uh, if a parent sends their kids to a Christian school and thinks that because they're in a Christian school, I don't have to teach them at home, which I've come across that attitude. I, I was over a school for for 11 years. Um, I've seen that, where you see the school as the place where, well, they're being taught there, I don't have, they're doing it for me. Uh, the danger with that is, and I've seen this, uh, I'll give the example of, um, if I teach the kids in confirmation at school that the third commandment means that church should be the highest priority in your life, and that God's word actually matters, and then their parents have them skip that following Sunday to go to a sporting event, their parents didn't teach them, hey, this is more important than that, but that's what they learned. Um, and so, I mean, there, there's that, that does matter, right? Like, that it's the home and all those things working together. I saw a hand. I can't see whose hand it is. Go ahead. You got the important phrase in a post training class, but it translates very well. You teach what you allow. Yeah.
Right, absolutely. I mean, um, most of, so this is another thing with, as far as head, hand, heart, all those kind of things. Much of what you believe is actually caught. It's not taught directly to you. I, I can give you a great example of this. Uh, for years, in most homes in the United States, all of your gardening hoses were green. No one told you they had to be green. Everyone just had a green one, right? There's a culture, you were enculturated to that. It seems like a silly example, but even the way we dress, we're enculturated. Uh, the Greek word for this is paideia. Paul talks about this in Ephesians, um, that we're to train up children in the paideia of the Lord. And paideia in the Greek culture was, how do you make a good Greek citizen? And Paul steals that word and says, parents, this is what you're to do for your children. And in, in the Greek culture, it was, you read the Iliad and the Odyssey. You read the works of Homer, right? You, you do certain things that make them a good citizen. You enculturate them. So everything that is around a child is around us, what we watch, what we listen to, the arts, the music, everything is shaping what you believe about things, whether you realize it or not. And if you don't realize it, you're, you're being shaped more than you think. Like, we're shaped by these things constantly. Um, so you don't have to tell someone that this or that is important to you. They, they will much more readily see it, and they will catch that. Much more than, if I tell them this is important, and then I do the opposite, then they know that it's actually not important. Right? Um, I mean, that's, that's one of the dangers in thinking we're, if we just teach someone more doctrine, they're going to get it. When oftentimes there's a lot more going on th than just that. Yes, sound doctrine is extremely important. That's why I'm teaching a Bible class right now. But there's a lot more that goes on to why people make decisions. And culturally speaking, this is why Christians and, and other conservatives, or whatever they want to call themselves, have often lost on a lot of these battles is because. The other side's better at telling stories often. We try to present facts to people. Like, if you're gonna try to win someone over an abortion, you just present facts, they don't care. But a really good story is much more powerful to them, right? Hearing about someone who saw their baby and like kept it, it's much more powerful than presenting like a list of facts to them as if that's what swayed someone to begin with. Because I promise you this, they weren't swayed to their current position by facts, right? That didn't happen, like, ever on that issue. They weren't swayed by, like, the science or the evidence or any of that. They are swayed for a whole lot of other reasons. Uh, all that say people are complex. Um, and we catch these things and learn these things in a variety of ways. Any other questions on how we're attacked before we move on to our weapons and defense? <laughs> all right. Um, Ephesians 6... We could look at the individual armor, but we probably don't have time. Maybe we'll go back and pick that up if we have time. But uh, the point of Ephesians 6 is Christ is your armor. Like if you look at the armor, and Paul's drawing that not just from Roman soldiers, which he is using some of the language of that, uh, but he's also looking to the Old Testament that uses this imagery. And ultimately, your armor is Christ. That's who you're clothed with. That's baptismal imagery, right? So you're clothed with this armor. You, when you put on Christ in baptism... You're being, this armor is put on you. Um, and then from Revelation 12, the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, right? So it's, it's looking to, to Christ who, who covers us and is our, our salvation. And it's our confession that, that that's true, right? That's why, that's why Luther, when he talks about these spiritual attacks of conscience, if it's like you're being burdened by sin or whatever, and, and the devil's saying, um, you, this, you, that. By the way, that's one way to tell 
Um, I, I've offended people with saying this. I'm going to try to word it carefully. Look, uh, I realize that there's mental health issues that also have these problems. So I get that. But if that's not you, and you're a Christian, and you're having you thoughts, you did this, you did that, that's probably a spiritual attack. Like I thought, like I, I'm no good, I'm worthless, whatever. Though that's like your own simple flesh. But, but you, this, look at the way Luther talks about this. This is all over Luther. Um, so he says when the devil comes to you and says, you, you're no good, blah, blah. Like you've sinned, look at what you've done. Jesus can never forgive you. He says things like, go, go take that to Jesus. Go argue with him, right? You tell the devil, go argue with Jesus. You tell the devil, I am baptized. I belong to Jesus. You have no authority over me, right? Luther uses that language. When, when these you thoughts creep in and you're being tempted in these ways in your conscience, Luther says, you, you tell the devil to go deal with Christ. That's what he needs to argue with. Because the thing is, the devil comes and says, you're no good, you're rotten, Jesus shouldn't forgive you. What can you actually say and mean it? You're right. You're 100% right. But Jesus took care of that, so go deal with him. I mean, honestly, right? Take away his weapon. If he's accusing you, you can say, yeah, and more. You forgot all these things. But Jesus has actually dealt with all that. So thanks be to God. Go argue with him. I've been baptized. I belong to him. My sins have been forgiven. Uh, so you have no authority here. Take it up elsewhere. That's the kind of language that Luther uses throughout. Or the great hymn we have. God's own child, I gladly say it, deals with this. Right? Um, and it, it even rebukes not just Satan, but death itself in that hymn. Death, you cannot end my gladness. Right? Uh, so, so understanding uh, that. Um, and again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the confession of sin, the, the idea of taking the garbage out, reviewing each night. Um, because if you're, if you're constantly confessing your sin and receiving forgiveness, that gives Satan much less room to come in and creep in and attack you. Right? Because usually it's unconfessed sin that the devil's attacking you with. Um, the Bible says we're to have sober vigilance. Um, 1 Peter 5 down there talks about this. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We're to resist him. Well, being sober vigilant means paying attention, right? So in the Bible, being sober versus being drunk, the reason you're not supposed to get physically drunk on alcohol is because then spiritually you can't see things right. You're not thinking clearly. Whereas sober vigilance is being spiritually aware and paying attention and so you're viewing everything that's happening around you through the lens of the word of God. That's being soberly vigilant. You're paying attention. You know Satan can attack at any moment. You know he's probably attacking you and don't even realize it. So you're paying attention. How is he attacking me today? Right? If you're really tired and you know you struggle with certain sins when you're tired, like I got to be on my guard for this because I'm really tired today. Or something happened to you and you're like, got bad news or something and you're kind of down and beat down about it. You know that Satan can use that. And so you're, you're on guard. You're paying attention. You're being sober. You're being vigilant. Um, which includes praying, right? And reading God's words. Which, what do Satan and his demons hate? Um, they hate the word of God. <coughs> right? How does our Lord and his temptation, his battle against Satan, send him away? It's with the word of God. Right? That's why the only... The only weapon we have in Ephesians 6 is the sword, which, by the way, is, is a sword for close combat. You do not have to go out looking for the devil to fight him. 
don't. Like, there's church groups that kind of believe that. Like, we got to go out and, like, find the devil and fight. No. Like, the imagery of the Ephesians 6 armor is you're wearing shoes that are designed with spikes to stand firm. How many times? Paul says, like, three times there. Stand firm. Right? You stand firm. You stand where God has placed you. More on that in a minute. And the weapon you have is a short for close combat for when you're being attacked. And that sword is the word of God. Right? Um, so here, that's primarily a, it's a defensive weapon. Um, but also, Satan hates uh, when, you, when you confess the creeds. When you sing godly hymns that are in line with the Bible. The devil hates these things. If you read my first exorcism by Pastor Ristow, um, who's now in Kenya dealing with this probably on a much larger scale. But they even hate things like real Christian art, like crucifixes and like beautiful paintings of Jesus. Why? Because they hate anything that has to do with Jesus. That's what they hate. They hate things that clearly proclaim Christ, whatever it is. So, um, you know, that's why Luther will even say for a child who wakes up in the middle of the night with nightmares, you teach them to, to call on Jesus in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make the sign of the cross and pray because they're scared. And who should they look to? Jesus. To call on him in every trouble, right? Pray, praise, and give thanks, like it says in your catechism. Um, so that gets down to that next point about guard duty. Um, where God has set you in your vocation is holy ground because you... So the imagery of the New Testament, again, we could spend a long time on this temple imagery that starts at the top with, Mount, with uh, the Garden of Eden on the mountain and runs all the way through the Bible. But by the New Testament, for us, it says you are a temple, right? Yes? Does it say that? Yes, it does. Okay. So you are a temple of the living God. Part of what that means is wherever you go is holy ground. Yes? Is that the theme throughout the Bible? Wherever God is present is holy ground, yeah? God places his name, and his spirit is holy ground. If you have God's name on you in your baptism and you have his spirit, then everywhere you go is holy ground. And so what you're doing as you go out in your various vocations that God has given you is you're standing ground, standing in holy ground, and you're defending. So, for example, uh, easy example. If, if you're a spouse or a parent and you pray for your spouse, you pray for your kids, that's part of standing guards. When you teach them the word of God, that's part of standing guards, right? You're, you're doing what God has placed you there to do. And so you're equipping them with the things God has given you. Um, when you pray for your fellow employees at your, at your job, right? You're, you're standing guards. That's what you're doing. Um, we, I think we think too little in terms of the fact that we're constantly at war. Like you are, every day. Until you die... This is your life. It doesn't let up. It may look different in various seasons of life. It may be more intense and less intense at various seasons of times of life. Maybe even during one week, right? But uh, that's, that's your life. You're constantly on guard duty. You're constantly a soldier. God has placed you there to do these things. Not in your own strength, right? What happens um, throughout the Bible is that God, it's Christ who shows up and fights for us. That's why the word is our weapon, because it's Christ fighting, fighting the battle. Um, we're just called to stand and be faithful and leave, leave that up to Jesus to win the victory. Um, I mentioned a couple of things. Somebody mentioned last time we talked about a couple of these things, um, the idea that things at night especially seem to be bad. And that's very true. Um, night attacks were a real thing. Um, again, we see this in the Bible. We see this. Luther talks about this. Other church fathers that 
Um, nighttime is often a time because you feel alone and vulnerable already. Like, think about it. It's really weird that you sleep and you don't have any idea what's going on around you. Like, it's a weird thing. And if biblically speaking, it's a picture of death and resurrection every day for you. But also, it's just kind of weird. Like, you have to completely... When Luther says uh, that you pray the evening prayer, right? And one that includes, may your holy angel be with me, that evil foe may have no power over me. And then you go to sleep at once. What have you done? You place everything into God's care and say, watch him protect me because I'm going to be sleeping. I can't do anything about it. Right? I'm, I'm out. Um, even if you're a light sleeper like me, still, you're, you're unaware of most of what's going on throughout the night. Um, part of this too then, um, the pastoral care companion um, has uh, house blessings in it. So that, that the pastor comes to your house and blesses every room of the house and the whole house. And again, it's not like you're going to see demons coming out of the walls. Maybe you will, but most likely not. But again, you're setting apart the, your house as holy grounds. Um, this, is, this is a place of the word of God in prayer. Um, there is throughout uh, Christian history and tradition, and I think, again, you see this in the Bible, but the idea of um, scarred places, places that are particularly evil because of what's been done there. It's like a real thing in the Bible. Um, so when you get into a new house, it's good to bless it because you don't, especially you don't know what's been going on in there before you got there. But also um, in the pastoral care campaign, it recommends having it yearly done. This is a constant reminder to us because God's word really blesses things. It really does something. So when you pray a blessing and you go around to rooms and read God's word, it's actually doing something. His word is living and active and powerful. It actually does stuff. Um, it's it's going to accomplish his will, right? When Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, uh, the church fathers say if he hadn't said Lazarus' name and just said, come forth, that all the dead would have come out. Because his word is that powerful, right? So when his word is proclaimed in your home, and you do this too, by the way, on a, when you read the word of God together and you pray together and you sing hymns together in your homes, you are blessing your home. You're doing that. Like that's part of that's part of this warfare. It's part of part of um, just the daily. Again, seems like really boring stuff. It's not like you know um, the Exorcist movie. By the way, the first one is based off of stuff that happened over in St. Louis. I don't know if you're aware of that. And involved a Lutheran pastor, LCMS pastor, and a Roman Catholic priest from over there. But I saw a preview for the newest Exorcism movie. And um, I have not seen a movie preview that demonic in my entire life. I was at the movie with someone who's not a believer, and they said, I don't think I could watch that. Like, it was that horrific. Like, it looked like it was honestly, like, made by demons. Like, no joke. Like, I've never seen anything like that. And this is the preview. Like, it was terrifying. Um, so if you're a fan of, like, the older exorcists, please don't think this is anything like that. I also don't think this one's based off of Maybe it possibly could be, I guess, but uh, what side they're on, the people making the film seems to be clear from the um, preview. It's pretty horrific. Um, but so house blessings are part of that too, like the, the way we view our homes, our lives, what God has given us. Um, so we resist the devil by living in repentance, living in his word and grace, staying under the authority of Christ and his word. Um, so the three estates God has given you, what, what is the state... Here's a, here's a pop quiz. See if there's anybody that knows Latin. Or at least the Latin root of this word. 
Where do we get the word estate? Huh? That's is related, yes. Uh, sto, stare, steady, status. Uh, to stand. So we think estate and we think like, you know, a house, a mansion with grounds. But an estate is a place where God has placed you to stand. So when Luther talks about the three estates, right? Home slash work, those were always connected in, in medieval times. Until the Industrial Revolution, that was always connected, those two things, home and home and work, right? Church and state. Those are the three estates. And within those estates, God has placed you with certain duties. That's why we have the table of duties in the catechism. Um, and Luther says every vocation you have within those estates is holy because you're a Christian and you live by faith. It's one of the big differences between us and Rome at the time of the Reformation, especially, was that they saw holy orders only as being like a monk or a nun or something, a priest. Whereas the Lutheran said, no, anything you do in faith in Christ is a holy order. Any place God has set you in an estate. So we have pastor and here for the church, right? You're either a pastor or you're a hearer. You're one of the two, right? Um, in the state, you're either the one governing or you're the one governs. In the home, you're a husband or wife. Um, if you have, if you're married, and if you have kids, then you're also a parent. If you're a child, you have duties you owe to your your parents and to your siblings. And it gives several other ones. And then at the end, it says the duty of everyone is to love. Right, that's with her summary of the entire, the entire table of duties. But as you live out your life in the three estates where God has set you, um, there, there is, there is, there's a level of protection there, for lack of a better words, because you're, you're, you're where God has placed you, right? So when you try to go break out of that and break out of where God has set you and try to take matters with your own hands, then that's where you end up in trouble. Um, and of course, we mentioned already, but um, prayer or, you know, you can include prayer and fasting. They always go together in the Bible. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, fasting is not about manipulating God. That's, that's a pagan view of fasting. The biblical view of fasting um, is that it's, it's good for us, disciplines us um, in, in a variety of ways and helps us in a variety of ways as we seek to live Christian lives. But it's not about, it shows God, it can show God that we're really serious about something. But it doesn't manipulate him as if like, oh, I saw you were fasting really well, and now I'm going to do that for you because you were fasting. Um, that's, that's not how it's supposed to work. All right, any questions, comments before we close on any of that? I thought talk of demons would bring a lot more questions. Maybe people are just afraid to ask questions about demons. Um, all right, well, let's close in prayer. Lord God, and Father, we thank you for your son, that he is our protection, that he is our very armor in the midst of this battle that we're waged in against the evil one. Bless us as we go out from this place in our various locations. Help us to stand firm as we're on guard duty, trusting in you and your holy word, not in our own strength and might. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.